Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. On today's program, we're going to listen back to excerpts from programs from January and February of 2021. In our first segment, we hear from Israel Collier, who tells us the story of Bobby Bostick. Mr. Bostick was convicted of several crimes that he committed when he was 16 years old and forced to serve the sentences for those crimes consecutively, adding up to 241 years in prison and not eligible for parole until 2091. Last year, the Missouri legislature finally stepped up and changed state law to allow those who were given long sentences as juveniles the right to apply for parole after 15 years. And this November, Mr. Bostick had his first parole hearing and in December was granted parole and will come home in 2022. Bobby Bostick is a 42-year-old African-American male who sits in a Jefferson City Correctional Center right now. He has been serving since the age of 17. Um, Bobby essentially was an accomplice to a crime. And we want to put that forward first, that this was a crime he committed, a violent one that had weaponry involved, um, basically two burglaries um, on a December night. But that's who he is in terms of the prison industrial system, who he is as a human, 42 years old, This dude has written 13 books, eight poetry, five books. And he has been kind and gentle to me personally. Um, We've written back and forth for almost five years now. He's a family man. He misses his family dearly, Um, very kind. And he's an advocate, a self-advocate. Like he advocates for himself and he writes us constantly who he wants us to reach out to. So he's his own advocate. He has two degrees, if I'm not mistaken, and he's, in my opinion, a a reformed gentleman, a rehabilitated human who deserves um, the right to a resentencing and definitely clemency. Um, So let's talk a little bit about um, what surrounded um, Mr. Bostick's sentencing. Bobby was given 241 years as, so two words to come to mind, concurrent versus consecutive. And unfortunately, he got the worst out of the deal, right? Consecutive, and, and that adds up to 241 years, as opposed to what his accomplice uh, got was 30 years, and he was older, right? And so that's one loophole. Now, the question is why? Why did uh, um, Judge Baker give him 241 years? Was it because he wrote letters and didn't, show remorse? Was it because he didn't really have support at the time? But it's like, what in, in Bobby's case made her decide, okay, this is it. I've had enough, 241 years. And she literally told this young man, no one will be alive, you know, when you see parole, no one. And, and that's personal almost. It's almost like, wow, what in particular happened in this case? that she decided at that time, because she's since recanted that um, she wanted to give this young man more than any of us would ever live, let alone, right, yeah, any of us would ever live. 
In our second section, we hear from Joshua Salim, the Peace Education Program Director of the American Friends Service Committee, talk about restorative education practices. The program that he describes in detail operated in the former Northwest Academy of Law High School in the St. Louis Public Schools. We are looking to achieve um, community and and build community, a sense of community. Um, At the same time, our mission is to partner with the young people, with the students in a particular school um, to help them gain a sense of their own power to create change in their school, um, but then also in the community. And um, we've done that since I I became the, the program director for AFSC in 2012 up till up till now, so the last eight years or so. So can you talk a little bit more about a school needs needing to fully commit to this type of program? Yeah, and, and so I guess if this is a, a good time to kind of um, talk about what we mean when we say restorative practices and restorative justice. Um, and so the, the International Institute for Restorative Practices kind of distinguishes between the two. And for restorative practices, they, they talk about that being about proactively building relationship and community to avert conflict and harm. So kind of getting ahead of things. And then restorative justice is reactive and, and, and sort of set in motion after there's been misbehavior or, you know, a conflict is erupted. And so restorative justice is, is, is in that way reactive. And, and so in the school context, I think you, you definitely need restorative practices because um, if you're only just sort of putting out fires or trying to put out fires with restorative justice, it, it, it's not going to be as effective. I mean, I, I think it can work, but it's not going to be as impactful. You're not going to have that community or sense of community and strong ties to the school that you would have if you're, if you take a restorative practice approach and a restorative practice, for example, would be um, like a check-in or like a welcoming circle at the beginning of the day where students are coming in. Typically teachers might just start the lesson or start their day um, without acknowledging that, you know, students are bringing in what they're bringing in, uh, <laughs> whether it's a fight that they, that they had with their mom that morning or a weekend and some, some tragic event has, has happened. Restorative practices allow, I think, our students and teachers to be whole human beings in the school context. Um, and then when you, when you add restorative justice to that, um, when there has been harm, there, there is an understanding that this is how we're, we're going to deal with it. Um, because if you, if you, what I've seen, it's, it's, it's been difficult to, for example, do a restorative circle. So let's say that there's been um, uh, a fight that's happened and you try to do a restorative kind of conflict resolution circle with some young people, if they haven't been introduced to the concept of a circle prior to that, it, it's, it's really difficult to, to have them fully engage and, and really feel that they can be open and vulnerable in that restorative um, conflict circle. So um, I really feel like schools need to have that um, that approach and in, in, in order for this to work, it has to be all in. <laughs> we got to be all in with restorative practices and restorative justice. It can't just be an option that they choose some, some of the time. It's got to be kind of our, our first, um, first go-to for how we respond to student misbehavior. 
there was a situation the year before last where a young person was suspended because of a fight that had happened. And um, in con we were in contact with uh, the teacher who was kind of facilitating the peer mediation circles with us. And um, the administration approached us and said, we're worried about this fight escalating again. They've been out of school for a couple of days and we don't like, we don't want them, we don't want it to continue. And so we had uh, what's called a restorative kind of re-entry circle where we sat down with the student, with the teacher, with the, the assistant principal, uh, myself and my colleague, Jonathan Polfus. And it was just a time of sharing, like and, and communicating to the student, hey, we know you're back. We know this happened. We want you here. We don't want the, 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 the behavior that caused you to be suspended to continue. Um, and it was, it was transformative, um, in, in terms of the relationship that she had with that teacher, um, because they had, I mean, they knew each other through class, but she had never heard from the teacher. Cause one of the questions is what, what do you value? What do you appreciate about the young person sitting here? And she had never heard that from the teacher or from the vice principal. And so it's, it, it's a beautiful space to be in and one that we don't <laughs> have, often enough in schools, um, spaces where we can appreciate one another and let, let folks know, hey, this is, this is not okay. We don't want you to continue down this path, you know? And she didn't, <laughs> they were worried about the fight continuing and it didn't happen. So um, I share that just as an example of the things that can come out, the beautiful things that can come out of restorative justice. Our next segment is an interview with Latrell Stanton, an organizer with St. Louis Expo, ex-incarcerated persons organizing. In the winter of 2020-2021, there were a series of protests by those incarcerated at the St. Louis City Justice Center. Latrell describes for us why these men took the risk to speak up about their situation. So let's talk a little bit about what the stated purpose of the CJC is. If someone is housed at the City Justice Center, what is their legal status? The people at the CJC have not been convicted of any crimes. They're housed there and held there, pending trial, if they're not able to make bail or bond. And so that's another distinction to be made is that these are not convicted criminals. These are detainees. So that's where they are in the legal process. They have not yet received trial and un unable to make bail or bond. And how long are, are, are men there? I've heard, you know, stories about people being held before trial up to six years. Hmm. I know personally when I was held, which was not in, uh, was not in CJC, but uh, when I was held before my trial, it was 18 months. And there was people that was in, uh, in the same wing as me that was held before that trial for two, three years. And you know, what will happen is you, you know, as a detainee will be in a hurry to go to trial. Um, but of course, the way the, uh, the legal system is and the uh, public defender's office is backed up, every time that you come up for trial, it gets pushed back, months back. As a detainee, you can never really sure that you can see the light of day 
because even if you have a trial date that's coming up in a few months that you think might decide, you know, your outcome if you're trying to fight for your freedom, most of the time when your court date comes up, it's going to get pushed back months and months and months and months. So it's, it's, it's horrible on the mind if you really uh, focus on fighting your case and, and, and want to see your day in court. St. Louis City Justice Center has been in the news recently and even nationally after men who were detained there took over portions of the facility on February 6th. So give us some details about what happened and why. It was on the morning last Saturday where uh, basically I received notice that there was a resistance occurring at the St. Louis Justice Center downtown. Mm, I immediately went down there uh, to find that the police had blocked up the streets and uh, they had been uh, fire engines and police cars surrounding the Justice Center, which is right across the street from City Hall. Some uh, detainees from the Justice Center had broken out a section of windows. I think it was on the fourth floor where they uh, held out signs and protests in support of um, detainees before them that had protested in uh, in light of uh, mistreatment that has been done by the uh, Justice Center. So this has was the third protest of such at the Justice Center. Um, Expo St. Louis received correspondence um, after the second protest. You know, the, the, the narrative that this is some type of random act is, is completely untrue. So take us back to December and January. What were those those protests about? Well, December uh, protests that we were explained to us in detail, basically around 10 a.m., um, Mr. Bay and about over 50 other individuals stood in solidarity outside of their cells in peaceful protests. And um, they wanted to express grievances, basically about, you know, non-running water, um, living without heat, and having no access to social distancing. And basically the protests were met with tear gas and water holes, and they were actually put face down in the contaminated water, handcuffed. And a lot of those uh, detainees were transferred to the condemned workhouse facility, you know, which is something else that we have to focus on because I really don't feel like this story is complete when you're talking about the Justice Center unless you actually talk about the workhouse as well, so. Connect what happened in February with what happened in the other two protests. Um, why, why did this happen uh, in, in February? After they had been going through the process for you know, anywhere from four to six months where they were filing grievances, grievances about food, about being housed with sick people, about the water not running, uh, just about different issues that they felt that were not being addressed. And so for a good period of time, they went through the proper channels, expressed grievances and filed complaints and were not, you know, given, given they feel like really a fair hearing as far as what was going on. Um, so they organized, you know, the, the, the thoughts that this was some type of random act 
you know, it's ex-incarcerated people, we understand that it's very difficult to get detainees inside of a prison to organize in large numbers. <clears throat> you may have your clicker, click of five or six people, but to organize any actions for anyone over, for anything over 10 people is really tough in any type of prison or jail setting. So they did, you know, they did that in the, on December 29th, they protested. And like I said, they were met with tear gas and they were sent to the hole. Well, the, the, the people who spoke out on the, in February were not the same people that protested on the 29th. You know, they actually held signs saying free the 57 because the 57 people that protested on December 29th had been locked in the hole or sent to the even worse workhouse. So you have to really understand that in, metaphor, in order for over 100 detainees to band together, they're risking retaliation. They're risking extended periods of time and extra charges in order to do this. They know that it's not going to end with them being released. They know that the end for them is going to be being locked up even deeper in even darker places for a longer period of time. So the courage that they had to take in order to bust out those windows, because if it was just, you know, like the media is framing it, if it was just a prison riot, they would have saw no need to bust out the windows to get attention. Um, they would they would have saw no need for that. Prison riots happen everywhere, and there's no need to try to make a connection with the outside world. This was truly a protest in which they were trying to get themselves seen and heard by the public. Our final segment is about a law that was proposed to make obstructing traffic while protesting a felony. We hear from Reverend Daryl Gray of Expecta St. Louis, Reverend John Stratton of Trinity Episcopal Church in St. Louis, and Richard Von Glan of Missouri Jobs with Justice as they give context to this attempt to suppress dissent. This legislation failed to pass in Missouri in 2021, but those behind the bill have already introduced legislation this year to suppress the teaching of truth in American history, restrict voting access, and make it more difficult for ballot initiatives to be launched and passed in Missouri. Uh, and I want to go back. Initially, we thought it was it was even worse than it is now. I mean, initially, we were looking at uh, obstruction of traffic or they were looking at it as a felony, just straight out the gate. Uh, because of Senator Barbara Washington and Senator Carla, Carla May and, and other senators uh, 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 in Jeff City, uh, they were able to present amendments to uh, the bill that would make it a, an infraction for the first offense, a misdemeanor for the second offense, and a felony for the third offense. From our perspective as, as activists, we're, we're still unclear. Uh, as to you know what that obstruction means. Does it mean standing still? Does it mean moving with traffic? Does it mean slowing down? There's still a lot of ambiguity about it, but for the most part, we just see it as legislation, anti-protest legislation, legislation that is geared to, to intimidate and threaten, uh, not necessarily uh, activists like you see here today, who are pretty hardcore activists, uh, but but activists who have come out by way of George Floyd, who are who are older, uh, who are 
uh, have not been involved in protests and, and to cause them to stop and wonder and think. I think it's also it's really important, I think, to point out the context of this bill. So it's labeled as a public safety bill. Right. Um, but what happened last year? So last year, a police officer murdered George, George Floyd. And this bill creates a police bill of rights. Last year, there was a call to take down racist statues and monuments. This bill protects statues and monuments. Last year, people made it out into the street, massive amounts of people, to demonstrate for social, racial, and economic justice. And this bill criminalizes that act. So it's not like this just came out of the blue because uh, our lawmakers were all of a sudden concerned about our safety. Like this is a, a racist white supremacist bill that is in direct uh, reaction and opposition to the movement for black lives. And because it is in that historical context, that's what makes it so blatantly racist. So this didn't just fall out of the sky because people were concerned about safety. Uh, but it's, it's also, if you look at it in a, even a broader historical context, it is part of his, an historic attempt to silence people's voices and to criminalize uh, activism or you know, to criminalize the democratic process. A lot of the civil liberties and rights that we have right now were because people stepped into the street and blocked traffic, right? Mm -hmm. So if this is a, an attempt to criminalize that, to make that a felony, uh, then it's part of this larger, larger historical attempt to squash the people's rights and freedoms to protest, to gather together, um, and to hold people accountable, particularly elected leaders. The, the phrase that always comes to my mind with this kind of thing, it comes from an old labor union song, which side are you on? Which mm -hmm. side are you on? And this is another attempt of our lawmakers to be on the wrong side. Right. And that question, which side are you on, isn't just a labor song, that's a theological question too. Mm -hmm. Because if you look through scripture, God is always asking us, which side are you gonna be on? Right. Are you gonna be on Pharaoh's side? going to be this or are you going to be on the side of liberation are you going to be on the side of the prophets or are you going to be on the side of unjust kings right. are you going to be on the side of the followers of love and of justice or are you going to be on the side of the emperor and this is just another attempt in a very long line of attempts to be on the wrong side and to make sure that the wrong side wins i want to add one thing to to think john and daryl's correct analysis of the historical context here but we should also look at what other bills advanced in the legislature this this week, this very week. There was the bill to criminalize protest and dissent that we're talking about. There was a bill for photo ID, which has shown to have a disproportionate harm on older communities and black and brown communities. There was a bill to restrict the ballot initiative process, which has been used by citizens to achieve justice on issues that the legislature was opposed to. And so this is part 
of a larger anti-democratic movement in this state and in this country in which those in power seek to use their power to cement their power and Mm -hmm. silence dissent. Um, And, you know, when, when you look at who that is in the Missouri legislature, um, it's, it's pretty clear who they are and, and who they're seeking to silence. Talking to, to Rod Chapel today from the NAACP, uh, and we were talking about these methods, the, the, the George Floyd movement, it was people, and, and, and John said it, people in the street who got the attention of the passerby, who, who made life a little bit uncomfortable for you because somebody else's life had been cut short. And so uh, trying to capture your attention, the whole idea of, of civil disobedience, but you're right. If you look at, uh, you know, without going into partisan anything, the reality was a progressive agenda was advanced last year uh, in, in so many ways. Black and brown people got out to vote. When we talk about voter suppression, even now, we're still talking about those cities and those states where black and brown people came out in record numbers in the midst of a pandemic and elected a Democratic president. George Floyd, uh, the, the former administration, Breonna Taylor, the whole thing, you are absolutely right, Richard, is that uh, those who seek to maintain the status quo, those who seek to advance white supremacy and white fear have decided that this is our time and this is the way to do it because they're looking at the future as well. They're looking at 2022 and they're looking at 2024 and they are preparing themselves to push back from the uh, progressive agenda, which we see was elevated uh, last year as a result or, or in, during the George Floyd uh, movement. So you're absolutely right, Richie. It's, uh, it's, it's not just one thing. It's all of the above, and they have decided that they don't have the luxury nor the time to try to do one thing at a time. Thank you for taking a look back at some of our discussions from January and February of 2021. If you are ready to join us in the work of justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or office at mcustl.com. You can learn more and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United at our website, mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you have been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. 